There you go. Well, good morning this morning. Uh, it is so good to be with you guys. It's an honor to be here at Sunrise Community Church. I think some of you guys know I was supposed to be here um, just a while back, and uh, unfortunately I lost my voice, and um, that was all it was, thank God. But um, during the season of COVID, I uh, just didn't want to, uh, yeah, risk it. So super uh, glad to be here um, today with you guys. Uh, I have to say before I get um, going too far into this that um, you guys are an extremely blessed congregation, extremely blessed congregation to have the leadership that you have here, uh, and Pastor Russ and Pastor Martin and, and Pastor Greg, uh, you guys are in really, really good hands here. Um, it's been a pleasure to uh, learn from Russ. I've gotten to go to a couple conferences with him and just watch how he leads in those uh, rooms and those settings, um, just a man of great wisdom, and then I sat on the uh, CPT team with him, um, and uh, yeah, just a phenomenal leader. So um, Greg gave you guys a little bit of uh, the background on me. Um, and so with that, I want to pray just before we dive into uh, the book of John. So would you guys bow your heads with me? Uh, Father God, would your spirit fall fresh on us this morning? Uh, would you block out the distractions of our day-to-day lives? And would you allow your word to penetrate our hearts and to speak into both our personal lives and the life of this church? Uh, may your son, Jesus, be honored, be glorified, And be praised. Would you bless us this morning with the curiosity to know you and your story better so that we may better reflect your character in our lives and to others? In your name we pray these things. Amen. All right, would you guys turn in your Bibles uh, to John chapter 5? John chapter 5, or you could go there on your phone, and it's going to be important because I'm going to ask you a question later on. regarding your specific Bible, whether that be in hand or whether that's the app, all right? And so uh, one of my um, favorite pastors once told me that if you don't bring a Bible, whether it's in paper or on your phone to church, it's kind of like showing up to church naked. So there you go. If you didn't do it, that's how you should feel. All right, turn to John chapter 5, and we're going to look at the first 15 verses, okay? The first 15 verses is what we are going to be uh, really spending our time on uh, this morning. And so I'm going to read it for you. It says, Afterwards, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry this sleeping mat. But he replied, The man who healed me told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing? They demanded. The man didn't know. For Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well, so stop sinning, 
or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. It's the word of the Lord. This is a fascinating story that leaves us at many times in the story asking a lot of questions. And so today, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, breaking this healing story down and then discuss what we can apply from this story to the situation that we find ourselves in as a church, right? As Sunrise Community Church, the same situation that TCC finds itself in with the RCA, but also as we look at life's big decisions that we're faced with in our own personal life leading up to the return of Christ. And I want to be clear about something before we really break down this part of the story because it's important that when we examine Scripture that we don't distort the Scripture, that we don't twist the Scripture to fit a certain narrative or a certain point, okay? And so although today we are going to spend a lot of time talking about the healing that took place and the pool and the man, the top priority In this section of scripture, and what John is really aiming at introducing here is the winds of hostility that are beginning to blow from the Jewish leadership so that we as the reader, as followers of Christ, understand where the fury and why the fury is coming down from the leaders of his day that would bring him to the cross. That's really what he's trying to get you to focus on, okay? And so I want to make sure that we're being fair to the text. And so keep this main point in the back of your mind as we examine the pool of Bethesda and the man who was healed. All right, so we're going to break this down verse by verse. So those of you guys who like that, great. Those of you guys who wish we just didn't do it that way, sorry, Tell Greg not to bring me back. All right, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holidays, or holy days. Now, normally, when John provides uh, a scene, uh, a setting, he tells us which feast it is. That's what he has done um, so far through this book, but this time he doesn't for some reason, okay? And so there is lots of uh, debate about which feast it actually is, and if it was Passover or if it was another feast, but he doesn't tell you, and so obviously it doesn't matter too much for this particular story and so um, if this is something that really bugs you you can go and examine it and you can look at all of the arguments and figure it out um, and then try to feel figure out feel your way through how that really impacts the story in the context of what's happening here but that's the, the the first verse second verse inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Now, Bethesda means uh, house of mercy in Aramaic, house of mercy. And this area was in the northern section of the city. And there were actually two pools with five columns that created this type of shelter uh, beside these pools. And I have a map for you guys that those of you... Those of you that are visual learners, you can see uh, the Pool of Bethesda there at the top. Okay, you can see the Sheep Gate. You can see that. I also have uh, a couple more pictures for you for those visual learners. Okay, and so this is the actual ruins um, of the Pool of Bethesda. All right, and then the next one is going to be a model. Okay, so you're going to see the Pool of uh, down there towards the bottom, Southern Pool, Northern Pool. You're going to have five porches down there. And then next I have for you, is that the last one there? I think so. So that's your model. Those of you guys that are are visual learners, that should help you out. And so verse 3, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. Now, those who were sick and looking to be healed 
had heard the stories. They had heard the rumors about this place. And they believed them enough to wait on these covered porches for an opportunity to be healed. Now this is where it really gets interesting. And after talking with Pastor Greg this week, I understand that there were quite a number of questions about the water and about the angel and about what's really going on here. And so I want you to take a look at your Bible and let me know if you have a verse 4 in your Bible. Anybody have a verse 4? Raise your hand. You got verse 4 in there? Okay. Verse 4, anyone else? Okay. So, not every version of the scripture is going to have a verse 4. A lot of the other Bibles are going to see, you're going to see that at the bottom in the footnotes, and it's going to explain a little bit. And so, um, as Christians, we believe that the word of God is inerrant, meaning that the scripture uh, is incapable of being wrong, okay? Um, We had an awesome sermonette up here, but right before I came up here from uh, one of your elders, right? And uh, you probably, you don't, you didn't need me to come today. Okay, so next time before you bring a guest speaker, you guys got um, amazing elders. That was perfect. Talking about the truth because this is what we need to talk about first. Before we can really dissect this story, right? Before we can dissect this scripture, we have to talk about the inerrancy of the scripture, the truth of the word. And so uh, we come to this conclusion, we come to this belief as Christians through the word. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right? And since God is perfect and incapable of error, we can trust in the accuracy of the Scripture. But the scripture that this doctrine is referring to is the original text, okay? It's talking about the original text that was written, the very first one that is not talking about the manuscript copies. Now remember, we do not possess the actual hard copies that the apostles and the prophets wrote, all right? Instead, we have copies of these writings and multiple copies. And since only the apostles and the prophets were inspired, only the text that they wrote is inerrant. And so there are copies that do contain differences. There are manuscripts that that contain additional words and other discrepancies between them. And it's not hard really to imagine why, all right? This likes to be a a point for the atheists, those who don't believe in God, those who don't believe in the truth of Scripture, right? They look and say, well, look, there's manuscripts with different things. How can you say that that word is trustworthy? Well, think about the job of being a scribe, okay? You don't have uh, the latest Apple computer. You don't have a computer at all. You don't even have... Uh, the most reliable ballpoint pen to work with. And so as you're copying one manuscript in the Greek under candlelight, you can imagine how, how tiring that would be, how boring that may be, and you begin to doze off, and all of a sudden you slightly turn an I into an E, or you make another little mark, right? And the next scribe that comes along to go ahead and make a copy of that one now looks at that and has to interpret what is it that that last scribe was trying to write. Is it truly an I? Is it truly an E? What is this little thing? And so they make their interpretations. And it's almost like that uh, playground game of telephone, right? Except for our manuscripts are much, much closer than how that game usually ends. And so it's important to know this, right, as Christians. And it's also important to understand that this is not a problem. This is not a problem. Because the Bible is preserved better than any other ancient book out there, right? The Bible scholars are able to reconstruct the original text that the apostles and the prophets wrote, even though all we possess is many, many manuscripts and the scribes who copied the Bible. And so I say all of this because in this passage this morning, we run into one of those issues, all right? So in some manuscripts, there was an additional ending to verse 3, and in some cases, a completely separate verse 4, and this is what it said. 
From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now again, in some of the best texts, you do not have verse 4 about an angel stirring up the water. So it could have been more about the superstition that took place at the time, the rumors that were taking place at the time, than the truth. Interestingly, and interestingly though, um, this is actually where the idea cam- comes from for the fountain that some of you guys would recognize from uh, lots of movies found in Central Park. You guys recognize that place right there? You guys seen that in the movies? Notice the angel at the very top? That is where they get this idea, the Pool of Bethesda. That is supposed to represent the angel who comes down and stirs up the water. So now you know. Fun fact, next time you're talking to somebody, you go visit New York like I know you all do, you just tell them. This is from the Bible right there, Pool of Bethesda. All right? So there's a couple things to think about before accepting this idea of an angel stirring the water. All right? Now these pools that we're talking about here were actually fed by artisan wells, okay, artesian wells, that looked like and functioned like hot springs at some points. And so it could have been that people thought that something was happening when all actuality what was happening was the water was bubbling up when the next uh, infusion of water hit that pool, okay, that storage tank. And actually today, uh, during the winter months, uh, you can still see water in some parts of those pools, okay, being fed in there with what's left. And so it could have just been those hot springs bubbling up and water feeding up to the surface. We don't really know what's taking place there. Um, in fact, this wouldn't be the weirdest uh, miracle uh, that has taken place uh, in the Bible, okay? This wouldn't be the, the weirdest way that people have been healed in the Scripture. For example, in Second Kings, we see a healing take place through a purified pot of stew, okay? I'm going to read this story for you. It says, When Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting in front of him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Then one went out into the field to gather mallow and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds. And he came and sliced them into the pot of stew because they did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat. But as they were eating the stew, they cried out and said, You man of God, there is death in the pot. And they were unable to eat. Then he said, Bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour it out for the people that they may eat. Then there was nothing harmful in the pot. Or Naaman, listen to this story, being healed by bathing in the Jordan River, also in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 10 through 14. Then Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was curious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will certainly come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the site and cure the leprosy. Are Abna and Parfar, the river of Damascus, not better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants approached and spoke to him, saying, My father, had the prophet told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times in accordance with the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. I won't read the rest to you, but uh, you can on your own time. There's also a healing by the touching of the bones of Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 13, a healing by the shadow of Peter in Acts chapter 5, and a healing that takes place by Paul's handkerchief in Acts 19. So, in fact, 
There are even recent, more recent stories of healings that take place uh, that exist like the healing waters of Lourdes, France. Has anybody heard of this story in Lourdes, France? Okay. So the story goes that over the course of several months in 1848, the Virgin Mary appeared a number of times to a a 14-year-old peasant girl named Bernadette. Now the young girl had a little education, and when she tried to explain what happened to her, everyone thought that she was making it up. And during one of the apparitions, during one of these moments where um, she saw, or what she thought she saw of Mary, Mary actually instructed Bernadette to start digging in the ground and to drink from the spring that would appear. And people became concerned as the young girl began digging and eating dirt and drinking muddy water, but soon a miraculous spring would come forth. And that same spring continues to flow even today and has been the source of many supposed miracles. The, the Catholic Church actually has recorded a lot of the miracles that have taken place, the healings that have taken place, okay? And the Catholic Church eventually approved Lourdes as an official Marian apparition site, and millions of pilgrims began journeying, began journeying there each year seeking physical healing, spiritual healing, emotional and mental healing. And for just six ninety nine. You, too, can have a bottle of this water if you'd like shipped directly to your home. There you go, right there from Lourdes. And there's actually another picture, I think, there for you so you can see what that looks like, um, that spring bubbling up there. But there you go. So back, then, back in there, you see Mary, the statue, that, that's supposedly where uh, this young girl saw the aberration there, and then the spring back behind it. And so this is a place that is um, visited by millions of people. So we see all kinds of, of crazy kind of Uh, examples of healing, right? And so uh, it's easy for us to laugh at this now, right? To laugh at these types of things. But for those who were desperate, those who were extremely desperate for healing during Jesus' day that, that witnessed healings and that heard the stories of miracles, they were convinced and to the pool of Bethesda they ran, all right? So verse five says, one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? So Jesus approaches one of the porches, notices this man in particular who had been in pain for 38 years, and asks him, would you like to get well? This verse brings about so many questions. Why did Jesus choose this man? Why would you ask someone if they want to get well that's been trying to be the first person to touch the water for so, so long, right? Why not heal everyone, right? Why not stir the waters yourself? Why have an an angel do that? Now, we aren't given the answer from John, just a question, right? Do you want to be made well? And this is the type of question that would focus your attention. This is the type of question that would cause you to put yourself in the man's shoes as you read it, right? Could you imagine your response if a person walked up to you after 38 years and asked you that question? You would focus your attention and focus your thoughts on the person who asked you that question. Your hope would certainly begin to rise because of the way that that question is asked. It's done in such a way that the person that is asking you, do you want to be healed, has the actual power, the authority to heal you, to follow through with that. And this man responds by saying this in verse 7. Lord, I have no man to put me in the water when it is stirred up, and when I do... Another beats me there. Now, this could just be an excuse because not every sick person wants to be made well, 
All right, we all know this. You guys, I'm sure, have experienced this firsthand with the homeless population across the street. Um, if you were to ask them right now, if we said, let's go over there and let's ask them, do you want to be made well? I'm sure that you would get a grab bag full of answers from those who uh, don't want to change their lifestyle, who are happy with the lifestyle that they're in, to those that who have, have just truly lost all hope. Um, and that's, that's a real, real answer, right? A lot of us, I was dealing with this not too long ago. I, I popped back on uh, campus at TCC. Uh, we were dealing with a lot of theft and those types of things. And so I decided, hey, you know what? I'm just going to walk the campus one night. And sure enough, I, walk, I find uh, a homeless guy there. And in talking with him, you know, I, I offered help. I offered all kinds of assistance and those types of things. And he just kept denying it. And I said, so what's your plan? You know, what's your plan? It's cold out here. What's your plan? And he said, I just got to make it through the winter, right? And then when it gets warm, then I can start collecting cans and uh, I can turn those in and I, there's a place where I can go and work and I, I just got to make it enough money so I can get my drugs and then I can get back through the winter. He didn't want to change his lifestyle. His lifestyle was what he knew, was what he was comfortable in, right? And he wasn't willing to change it. And so this is a real condition. People that lose hope don't want to change because uh, to be helped represents a threat that they can't handle, right? I've, I've gotten so used to this. I know how to control my situation uh, out here. But to be able to enter into the real world again and go through all of those things and all of the expectations, that just seems unbearable, all right? And so there are people who are satisfied in their paralyzed condition. So this man could have been being very honest, right? And one Bible commentator once said this. He said, this man is an interesting blend of hope and hopelessness, right? He had enough hope to believe in the healing power of the water, right? Enough hope to lay there, but not enough hope to think that he would ever be the one to make it to the water in time. See, his response was one that limited God to his own ideas of how things work at the pool of Bethesda. And the late, great Charles Spurgeon, a pastor in the mid-1800s, once said this about this passage. He said this, A multitude of needy people were there, yet none of them looked to Jesus. A blindness had come over these people at the pool. There they were, and there was Christ, who could heal them, but not a single one of them sought him. Their eyes were fixed on the water, expecting it to be mixed up. They were so taken up with their own chosen way that the true way was neglected. See, Spurgeon pictured the multitude waiting around the waters of the pool of Bethesda, all of them looking to another way to solve their problems, one that they could wrap their minds around, one that they could control, right, instead of looking to Jesus. These people needed to fix their focus on Jesus. And I got to thinking this week, how often are we guilty of that very same thing? You know, rather than looking to Jesus for guidance, for help to do things his way, we look elsewhere. We rely on our own strength and that which we alone can control. Think about the most simplest of examples. The last time you had a headache or a migraine, did you pray to God to take it away first? Or did you walk over to the cabinet, open up it, and grab an ibuprofen and take that? All right? We all do it. And as we walk through this big decision that faces us in the RCA and choosing a new denomination and all the underlying issues that don't just disappear from the culture and society when we make it a, a decision to move, what are we really focused on? Are we focused on the water? Are we waiting for it to be stirred up? Are we willing to continually 
day by day, fix our focus on Christ. And it doesn't just end with fixing our focus because we have to respond to Christ. Verse 8, Jesus told them, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. See, Jesus challenged the man to believe him for the impossible. The amount of faith that it took from this man to try to use his legs after 38 years of paralysis is amazing. And Jesus heals in the midst of the miracle water, right? Proving that he is mighty and that he alone is the one who saves. And this miracle focused focused the attention on Jesus' claim to be able to bring and to restore life. And it was against this background of this miracle that the fury of Israel's leaders that Jesus began to teach about God's grace. He introduces the idea of God's grace here. He extends this grace, not because of this man's faith. This man demonstrated no faith that would, uh, that would cause him to be healed by Jesus, right? Instead, Messiah does this to display God's glory to others. Verse 9 and on says, Instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was, who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, The man who healed me told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that? They demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. So the Jews... Let's get this right. The Jews see a man walking that they probably have seen and recognized there at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And instead of responding to the miracle, right, and saying, whoa, how are you walking, right? What's their first response? Why are you carrying a bed? Not, wow, this is amazing. What happened? Show me, like, tell me all about it. No, why are you carrying a bed? Why are you walking again? They were so caught up in the rules that they added to the law of God that they missed the chance to celebrate the work of God and the healing of this man. And they asked this man why he's working on the Sabbath, and the man responds with, the man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk. See, this guy doesn't give a testimony to the goodness of Jesus. He doesn't stop and tell him about how, how great this man was to, to call him out, to give him you know, the gift to walk again. This guy couldn't even be bothered enough to ask Jesus' name after he healed him. He just says, that guy told me to do it. That's why I broke the law. Blame him. Right? We see the very same thing happen in Genesis with Adam and Eve, right? God asked Adam, why'd you do that? Eve told me to. Don't blame me. Just pass it on. And after the situation dies down a bit, Jesus finds this man in the temple courts and he tells him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse is going to happen to you. See, Jesus could see that this man had no gratitude based on his actions. So Jesus warns him. Again, out of love, he warns him. Demonstrating the grace of God, he warns him, change your ways. If you thought 38 years of being paralyzed was bad, it has no comparison to eternity in hell. Repent and fix your focus. See, John is showing us here that Jesus is not just interested in healing our physical pain and brokenness, but more importantly, he wants to heal our souls from sin. Instead of heeding this warning, 
the man responds by seeking out the religious leaders and informing them that the man who healed him, the man who blessed him with the ability to walk, the man who answered all of his prayers, his name, his name is Jesus. And this man encountered the living Christ. He received the blessing, and he did not bear witness to him as his Lord. But instead, he turned on him, never letting Christ's transformational work make it past the point of physical healing. See, fixing our focus is something that we have to do in our Christian walk daily. It's a lifelong process. It doesn't just happen one and done thing. This is something that we gradually get a clearer and clearer picture of the person of Christ, his transformational power in our life, and the steps of repentance, submission, and the response that it takes in our life through faith. See, Christ holds all things in his hands, including the church, this church, including your life. And as we sit here, and as we listen to his words, what is our response today to his question, do you want to be made well? What's our response to that? Are we focused on the problem that we're faced with? Are we focused on only the solution that we can wrap our minds around with? Are we still in that same point limiting God? Are we focused on the one who holds everything in his hands? Are we going to look to him for our fix and respond to his work in our lives in faith, in submission to his ways, to his truth? It's not easy. It's not easy. It seems like a simple answer. But it is a hard, hard task and it is a lifelong journey to continually, day by day, fix your focus on him. Unfortunately, the world today is resting on one of those porches as well. Trusting in all kinds of things. Everything from the, the bubbling of the water to the angels stirring it, right? And here we have the truth. The truth. Right here. You want to be made well? Stop looking over there. Stop looking at this. Stop thinking that money's going to solve your problems. Stop thinking that it's all, it's all about family first. If I just hang out with my family, do my family thing, nothing else can come in and get in my way. If I just do these things, if I just get my education right, if I just get the, the perfect job, no, no, no. Jesus is standing there, and he has his truth for you. He has his word for you. And he's saying, look here, look at me. And he's saying, now follow me. Trust in me. Follow me daily. Fix your focus on me. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and for how it applies to every aspect of our lives. You are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, and we put our trust completely in you. Father, would you find us faithful as we look to you for guidance, for wisdom, and for discernment against the adversaries that we face in our life. Would you continue to bless your church, the bride? Would you have your way, and would you respond with thanksgiving, with love, with respect, and the worship that you alone deserve? Would we do our best to respond to your offering, to go and sin no more? Help us through the power of your Spirit, Father. Fix our focus. In your name we pray these things. Amen.